Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> Any uh, just immediate reactions to what we were just watching? Yeah. Uh, I just noticed. <clears throat> Check. I noticed the part about we receive every dividend uh, or something to that effect, except abuse. And I just had an experience last Sunday where I'm in a group and we allow sort of crosstalk, and there was. A statement made that that person thought was funny, but it hit me and kind of it hurt. And I had to pause and still thinking about, was that abuse or was that just uh, something that I may have needed to hear? Um, so it's sort of determining what is abuse and what is not. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe we'll touch in on that sometime today. But that's a good point, because sometimes it's hard to know. And what people consider to be joking or humorous might actually have a barb to it. We're going to talk about how the ego works and how it can tend to be like that. Uh, any, any other other comments? Way in the back. Hi. Close to another. main um, response was the, that is the impulse simply to to cry to sob because it's so op- what you present there and is so opening it opens so very much so if I were allowing my complete response, it would just be not out of sadness at all. It would be to, to just sob. But again, with a kind of a, a from a very deep, very deep through time and space, a deep place inside. And thank you. Thank, thank you, you for your work. Thank you. With this. Hi, good morning. Um, Hi. I, I, just, I just want to grin from ear to ear. I came in full of you know, reasons for self-pity and worried I was going to cry all day. And your message was so simple. And I just want to dance. So thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was very moving. Um, The thing that most caught my attention was a line about uh, fear as we open up and are more loving and I've been more attentive to um, areas where I want to be more loving and I'm very afraid. 
we're definitely going to go into that part of the topic. Okay, well, I appreciate your having watched that and uh, your comments. And we're going to start shortly. I just wanted to mention that this is the book I'll mainly be using, but any of my books are in the bookstore. It's called How to Be an Adult in Love, Letting Love in Safely and Showing It Recklessly. So I'll say a little more about that. And on the back table in this room, I have this book and others on CDs. They're actually MP3s. You can listen in the car. So it's the whole book read aloud. So if you're interested, you can take a look at those. And uh, does everybody have one of these yellow cards? If you don't, could you raise your hand? Oh, okay. And just bring back what's left over. Yeah, just keep your hand up. Everyone have one now? Okay. So I'm going to just read it um, and then just kind of follow along silently. And this is uh, what I use to start the day with. So you may want to keep it and use it for that purpose. I say yes to everything that happens to me today as an opportunity to give and receive love without reserve. I am thankful for the enduring capacity to love that has come to me from the sacred heart of the universe. May everything that happens to me today open my heart more and more. May all that I think, say, feel, and do express loving kindness toward myself, those close to me, and all beings. May love be my life purpose, my bliss, my destiny, my calling, the richest grace I can receive or give. So coming from this kind of an affirmation, which begins with the realization that no matter what happens to us, it's an opportunity for practice. Practice of what? Today, the particular Buddhist practice we'll be concentrating on is loving kindness. To see what happens, not just as a neutral event, 
but as some type of gift, opportunity, calling to do what? Either to give love without reserve or to receive it that way. This would make us want to pay close attention to where our fears are. How am I afraid of giving and how am I afraid of receiving? Both of which we'll talk about shortly. This moves us toward a sense of thanks that there's some capacity in us and it endures no matter what to love. Where did it come from? It came from a heart place. It came from the very center, albeit a moving center of the universe. It's spiritual, hence sacred. Then I ask that whatever may happen to me, it will serve to open my heart more and more. As if wanting to open more had become very important to me. Then I make a dedication. May all that I think, say, feel, and do, all that I am, may it serve to express loving kindness in three directions. I want to show it to myself, to those who are close to me, near and dear, especially a particular person in a relationship if I'm in one, and then to all beings. So it starts in the smallest place, namely this one person that is myself. Then it starts to expand, and it expands universally to all beings. And then finally, I'm asking that I start to see my life purpose as giving and receiving love without reserve. That this will be the new form of happiness for me. When I think of what makes me happy, I will now include love as what makes me happy. I'm happy when I'm loving and when I'm loved. To see love as my goal in life, my destiny, why I came here. Why was I born? I was born so that I could show the unique signature form of love that's in me. Where did it come from? The sacred heart of the universe. This is my calling. And finally, I'm acknowledging ultimately this love which I give and receive comes to me as a grace, as a gift. It's not based on what I'm doing to achieve it. It's not something earned. 
It's not something that I have to work for. It's given to me as a gift, grace, gift. And then this rich grace of being able to love, which all of us have, I can let it in or I can give it to others. So our topic today is the biggest it could possibly be. It's uh, the most wonderful of all possibilities. And yet, as we've noticed, there are times when it can be scary, confusing, and it can get all caught up with particular needs, yearnings, cravings, we want to look at that and see what's actually going on. So, any questions or comments before I go on based on what I was just discussing? So everybody has the basic concept. So let's begin with what we might use as kind of a working definition for the day of love. It will always have a twofold kind of description. Can you see on this side? Okay. So we'll have, shall we say, um, a general universal kind of definition, and then we'll have a personal unique meaning. Uh, that book, The Five Languages of Love, in that book, he talks about um, how each of us understands love in a different way. So that's the unique personal part. Only you will know what feels like love to you, but everyone will acknowledge certain characteristics that, um, of love that seem to fit for everyone. So I'm going to... What I'm calling it in the book is a caring connection. Which is shown by what I call the five A's. Many of you are familiar with these. Someone is paying attention to us, to our feelings, to our needs, to who we really are and what we are really about. Someone is turning with an engaged focus in our direction. I'm thinking of a line from um, a book by Salinger, Uh, And this is a quote. 
It's a child talking about his father. He says, My father turned to me as if he had been waiting his whole life to hear my question. I thought, oh, that's the kind of attention we must really want. And that, that would feel like a loving move toward us. Secondly, we're hoping that someone will accept us as we are rather than try to make us into what he or she would like us to be. We might have noticed this in childhood. We might have caught on that our parents had a particular image in their minds of what we were supposed to be, and that we received more love when we lived up to the image. And so we started to adjust our personality so that we would um, be pleasing to them. I'm thinking of this quote by Alice Miller in um, the drama of The Gifted Child. The love we gained from our parents with such uphill level with such uphill effort was not meant for us at all, but for the us we had created to please them. The love we gained with such uphill effort was not meant for us at all, but for the us we had created to please them. That would be the opposite of acceptance. Third, that somehow this person who loves us really values us, appreciates our feelings and everything about us, what we offer, what we can't offer, Uh, one of the great bodhisattvas of Buddhism is Jizo, J-I-Z-O. He's the kind of equivalent of what in Christianity would be a guardian angel. And uh, one of his wonderful qualities is that he understands how hard it is to be human. And so he's very compassionate toward all our mistakes and how we keep failing in our following of the Dharma, Buddha's unsurpassable way. Appreciate P-R-E-C, Latin word for price. You are of great price. This love is shown with physical affection. If it's appropriate, it'll include sex, but it doesn't have to. The person who loves you has become used to showing you affection through hugs and holding and um, close physical contact. And if 
sex is part of it, that too happens in an affectionate way, kind of a tenderness. And then finally, the one who loves us is totally open to our choices and is allowing us to make the decisions that reflect the deepest needs and wishes that we have. The opposite of the allowing would be controlling. So this is a totally non-controlling person and he or she is not only allowing us to make the choices we would like to make, but also makes allowances when we make mistakes, not picking us up on every little thing. Opposite of attention is his mind is only on himself. And when I'm talking, he's planning what he will say in response about himself. He is not attending to me because he's so tied up in his own ego. Opposite of acceptance is rejection of you, judgment of you. So you can see right away, so judgment and rejection. You can see right away that mindfulness would be helpful because in mindfulness, we are sitting and we're letting go of those judgmental thoughts. In that sense, mindfulness is helping us be more loving. Opposite of appreciation is taking you for granted. Opposite of affection is using your body for one's own purposes or uh, being distant and cold. So the love that seems to be what everyone wants is some type of caring connection that is attentive, acceptant, appreciative, affectionate, and fully liberating. Then you yourself have a unique signature style of being loved. Usually this can be traced back to that person in your childhood who loved you unconditionally and enduringly. So if you think of the way one of your parents loved you or both or older brother or sister or aunt, uncle, grandparent, somebody loved you in a very wonderfully comforting way, which you can still feel that's your unique way of being loved. Could be something like loves to be with you. Could be something like um, stands up for you. Could be something like uh, 
is always on your side, holds you in a certain way. We're out there looking still for that. And when it didn't happen, or if it mostly didn't happen, then where these instinctive needs, these five A's being the instinctive needs we came into the world with, that then turn out to be what love looks like, when these were missing, or if one of them were missing, then since they were instinctive and required, there would be a hole inside, worse than a hole, a bottomless pit, so that we would be out there in the world looking for someone who would give us what we missed. So I'm out there, is there somebody who will give me the affection that I didn't get? And when you do find such a person, you come toward him or her with such neediness and with such inability to be fulfilled. You know, you just don't have the capacity for fulfillment because when the needs were fulfilled in early life, what they do is they install a capacity in you for satisfaction. Satis in Latin means enough. This part means make, makes for enough. You have, you have the ability to be satisfied. Whereas when, it, when they weren't fulfilled, the, this is lacking. There is no capacity for satisfaction. There's just continual craving. This poem by Emily Dickinson first lets us know that when the needs were not fulfilled, you would have felt like you were a mourner because you knew you were supposed to get these five A's, and they were not forthcoming, you would have known that something was missing without being able to state it very specifically. This would make you keep in mind that whatever was missing might be out there somewhere, so I need to look for someone who will give me what I miss. A loss of something ever felt I. The first that I could recollect, bereft I was of what I knew not. Too young that any should suspect. A mourner walked among the children. I, notwithstanding, went abroad as one bemoaning a dominion herself the only prince cast out. 
Elder today, a session wiser and fainter too as wiseness is, I find myself still softly searching for my delinquent palaces. And a suspicion like a finger touches my forehead now and then that I am looking oppositely for the sight of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is within. So she's saying, yeah, I went out from my house, started looking around. I thought, the palace of five A's must be out there somewhere. Maybe there's somebody who will invite me in. But it didn't happen, and gradually I realized, oh, that's the palace that's in me, the enduring capacity to love that came from the sacred heart. That's in me. And lo and behold, all the while, 2,000 years before, Buddha had found this out and created this loving-kindness practice, which we'll talk about. And it starts with directing this need for love and giving of love to yourself. This prepares us to give it to others. So, when the needs were fulfilled, what needs? The need for attention, acceptance, and so forth. When they were fulfilled, with them came the capacity for satisfaction. So when we meet the person who becomes a partner and we notice all his or her uh, inadequacies, deficiencies, failures, but somewhere there's love in there for us, that will be okay because we can be satisfied with a moderate dose of the fulfillment didn't have them fulfilled originally, then we're looking for more and more, usually from people who can only offer less and less because it won't be as healthy a person who responds to you when you come toward him with great neediness. The healthy one, seeing such neediness, will back away or use you for sex but then back away from the real intimacy. So that's the sad and desperate condition we find ourselves in sometimes. But everybody here today will be able to find a way out of that in the course of all that we'll be talking about. So questions about this part? This is just a short summary um, because I want to go on to how our practice is going to help us. Way in the back. Check. Thank you. Um, If I understand correctly, then, you're saying that these five A's are the distinctive needs we have in order to understand love and then therefore create a capacity for satisfaction. Well, if none of these were given or maybe one was given, do we, is it automatic that we will have no capacity to satisfy or 
might we just learn how to love ourselves or access love from all sorts of different areas, even nature, and then create that capacity. So it's not that we lack the capacity, it's that maybe it's undeveloped, like a muscle that hasn't been used. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a better way to put it. And thank you for putting it that way. And that is our topic today, of course, is how to um, make up on your own and from the people around you for what was missing. And it helps to begin with the realization that uh, some of the cravings that you have, that all of us have, um, harken all the way back to childhood. Freud helped us see this, but it's pretty obvious. But yes, it'll be more like a muscle that can be strengthened now. Other questions about it? Okay, so... So let's begin by saying that, uh, and now I'm drawing a circle, and within this circle is myself. And all of us live our lives within concentric circles. The circle around myself, the ones which include the people closest to me, those are my near and dear. And this will include the person I'm in an intimate relationship with. But there's another circle beyond the near and dear. And these are acquaintances... And neutral people with whom I have a basically kindly relationship, like uh, the neighbor next door, the person at the bank, the mailman, acquaintances at work. Then there's a circle that's a little farther away from me that I'm kind of keeping more distant. These are the people with whom I have difficulties. These are the people who don't like me or I don't like them. And then finally, there are all the people in the whole world. And I will never really meet them, see some of them on TV, in the news, but they're, of course, the farthest away. So, concentric circles. In the middle, the first one, myself. Then those close to me. Then those who are close but not um, quite in my circle of affection. Then the people that I find difficult to be with or even could think of as enemies. And finally, all beings. 
And Buddha's proposal is that we offer loving kindness to ourselves. then to those near and dear, then to those who are neutral, then to those we don't like, and finally to all beings. And that this love that we offer will be equal, but shown in different ways. So the way I love myself is different from the way I will love neutral people. For instance, I love myself by healthy habits where I'm not imposing healthy habits on people I'm neutral toward. I love the near and dear by showing the five A's. I love myself by showing the five A's. With the neutral people, I show courtesy and kindness. With the people that I have difficulty with, I um, show my loving kindness by not retaliating, by noticing what they do, saying, ouch, staying away from them, but certainly not uh, taking revenge. And finally, I show care for all beings by having a care for the welfare of the world. It's a radical style because usually we would say, well, I love those who are appealing to me. I base my love on the fact that you're attractive to me. And in this practice, you don't do that. You're going to show this loving kindness toward everyone unconditionally, it's not based on the condition that I find you appealing. There's something about this choice and this practice that does what the woman over here brought up. It starts to take that unused muscle of all that we missed out on in the past, especially in childhood, And it starts to work it in a way that takes these original needs for attention, acceptance, and so forth and enlivens them so that we start to give them to ourselves and give them to those close to us and in whatever way possible, give them to the other people in the concentric circles. And gradually we notice that as we do this, our, the bottomless pit starts to release itself and our capacity for being satisfied starts to install itself. In this sense, the practice works backwards 
to heal the old wounds from the past. And I notice that I am present in the world now without that neediness and craving that I had before. Of course, we're doing the practice because it's our spiritual choice. But what I'm pointing out is that what I've noticed from doing the practice myself and from seeing how it affects other people, it also works in a psychological way. It starts to make up for some of what was missing. And it's such a it's such a confirmation of how the psychological and the spiritual come together, how they're integrated. Questions about this part? Okay. Where's yeah, why don't we start right here? Um, I have a question about acceptance part. Yeah. Um, both as a, I guess partly as a parent and then just partly as a person in the world. Um, I struggle with accepting everyone as they are and wanting to see things improve in terms of the world or people. Um, and I also find a lot in the Buddhist community um, words and not deeds that we accept those who feel the way we do, uh-huh. but we don't accept the broader world. Yeah. I could point to politics as um, a current topic. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with how can I accept everyone as they are and still want the world to be better or even myself to be better or even my, my children or my near and dear to be better. Okay, that's a good question. And um, Carl Rogers <clears throat> did um, address that. So let's start with the word accept, acceptance and I am going to go to the other questions, but... So the CEP tar- part, uh, that's the Latin word for take. The AC is two. So to accept is to take to yourself, to embrace, to hold, to make contact with whatever this person is like. That's accepting. It does not mean endorsing what the person does. It's simply um, holding someone in this embrace of loving kindness. And what Roger says is that this is the fast track when someone is accepted just as he is, paradoxically, instead of that leading to I'll be like that all the time, 
something opens inside. So by being accepted, something opens in me that releases more and more of my capacities, my Buddha nature ultimately, my true nature, the, the shall we say, part of me, although it isn't really a part, that uh, comes, that shows itself to be lovable and loving. So we're more likely to commandeer someone in the direction of showing the best that's in him when we accept him just as he is. This makes sense to everybody. As opposed to demanding that he or she be otherwise. Does this fit for what you brought up? But say more about your question. And and I can give one other quote, and this is from Suzuki, (coughs) who uh, founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And once he said to the um, practitioners, you're all perfect, but you still need some practice. (laughs) So, yeah. I'm perfect as I am, but I do need some upgrading. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy, because I just saw they upgrade, they're upgrading one of the iPhones. I thought, okay, they're upgrading. So it's perfectly an iPhone, but now there's an upgrade. So they do go together. Uh, you're perfect as you are, and you could use a little improvement. So you don't have to worry that your acceptance will stop the person from opening. If anything, it increases that. Because it creates what what in psychology is called the holding environment. What is a holding environment? It's... um, one in which you feel held just as you are, supported in who you are, and there's a sense that what you are can open up more and more. Or another way of saying it is that in all five of these A's that we came into the world seeking, there is a pathway toward our full opening into all the possibilities that are in us for lovability and loving. How do I know someone loves me? He or she pays attention, accepts me, appreciates me, so forth. How do I know I love myself? I pay attention to what's going on with me. I accept myself as I am. I appreciate myself. I hold myself affectionately rather than hate myself. 
And I go ahead and make the choices that, uh, without inhibition, that uh, show what I'm really about and what I really want. And that would be the same way we love others. Somebody else had a, yeah. Oh, you have a question? I was just going to say. You can use the microphone. I was going to say, in addition to that, you can only accept people totally knowing that you can't change them and accepting that. Yes. That it's not in your power to even try. Yeah. It's not, it would be like I'm no longer trying to change you. I'm just creating the environment in which you can open. Like in your garden, you're not trying to change a morning glory into a forsythia. You're creating the environment in which a morning glory can open. That's the same thing we're doing with each other, hopefully. seems to me there's another uh, experience based on my experience coming from that wound. Um, You can do it horizontally as you've described, but also there's a vertical intervention that if you have a direct experience with God, that that can also immediately open you up to that kind of healing of woundedness. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. That... um in your religious or spiritual orientation, you will have that sense, uh, that same sense of being held. You can see it very clearly in uh, the um, 23rd Psalm. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Uh, the Hebrew, actual Hebrew says, I will not be afraid. Why will I not be afraid? Because you are with me. In what sense are you with me? What do you mean you're with me? Well, David said, uh, I'm walking through a dark valley. And in that dark valley... I'm afraid. This dark valley could be any of our wounds. And it's scary to be in that wounded place. But there's some type of presence. And this doesn't have to be God. It could be um, whatever... uh, Power in your life seems higher than your own ego. You have to ask yourself, do I have something like that going on with me? And Buddhism offers it also, because we have all the bodhisattvas who are continually surrounding us, trying to help us in our practice. So what do you mean you're with me? What you mean is that I'm never alone as I walk through. These wounds that I carry are not held only as mine. 
there are others who have the same wounds. They're walking along with me. So I, they appreciate what I've been through. I appreciate what they've been through. And I've met people like this. This is you speaking. And uh, that gives me a sense of accompaniment, a sense of uh, there being a companion or that my life has a type of what Martin Luther King called a cosmic companionship. He said he felt that when he was doing his marches and so forth. So I feel like not only the, I felt like my companions were not only all those people marching with me arm in arm, I felt like I had a cosmic companionship, something in the universe itself that is holding me and loves what I'm doing. So that's what thou art with me promises for those who have this orientation. Somebody else had a... By the way, you notice that King David could have said, he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He could have said, since thou art with me, I won't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He could have said that, but he didn't. In other words, he got it. Having a spiritual practice or a religious orientation doesn't save you from even one of the givens that we all have to face. Yeah. Hi, I'll stand so I can see you. Um, I'm curious about your statement where you said, the, well, this is how I wrote it down. The more we do this loving kindness, the more the bottomless pit writes itself in to heal the old wounds of the past, right? And so I'm a holistic psychotherapist, and I often end up working with people who have significant trauma, and it plays out as addiction, right? Whether it be relationship addiction or substance abuse addiction, alcoholism, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I do incorporate spirituality. Everyone who comes to me knows that I'm a holistic mind, body, spirit practitioner. And so how can, and I don't know if this is a question you'll answer now or later, but how can we help some of these clients or people or even ourselves who might be such in that bottomless pit to even start taking the actions to practice some of this loving kindness? Thank you for bringing that up. Of course, trauma, especially very serious trauma, like terrible abuse that happened in our childhood, uh, requires a special kind of work that I presume you're skilled in doing. And so you would want to go to a therapist to help you work through the trauma. You don't want to um, be with someone who... Uh, pushes you back into the trauma. You want to be with somebody who creates the holding environment in which you very, very gradually move through it. And that reminds me that there are some people, and this is also in response to your question, that uh, there are some people for whom the timing for this process, timing ray trauma, will be very, very slow or even non-existent. 
sometimes the things that happened were so terrible that we're just never going to get to the point of being able to work them through completely. I have an example of this in another one of Emily's poems um, in which she uh, points out that uh, sometimes the things that happened to us were so big and so overwhelming that we um, just can't really face them. So this abyss inside, this whole H-O-L-E, this wound, um, she says, uh, might be so big that you don't really want to visit it at all. There is a pain so utter. It swallows substance up. Then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step around across upon it as one within a swoon goes safely where an open eye would drop her bone by bone. So sometimes the pain of what we went through is so big we're better off going into a trance, fainting, as one within a swoon goes safely, fainting rather than looking at it directly. Because if we did, we would fragment bone by bone. So you take care of yourself better when you don't go there unless you feel like you're ready. It's a good thing to keep in mind. All right, so let's have one last question that maybe is a little brighter and optimistic <laughs> as far as the response goes. Hi, um, I'm not sure if it's going to be really uplifting, but one <laughs> of the questions I have, I'm also a psychologist, but um, you, when you talk about people who don't get all the A's, the five A's, and yeah. what about the people who, because of that, they end up um, giving to all the other, you know, the outside world, all the steps, but the hardest people that they can give to is themselves. You know, that they're willing to give and give the love, kindness, all of that to the, everyone except themselves. Like, you know, kind of the self-compassion, self-love. Um, if you can speak about that. Yes, she's saying that there are some people who uh, certainly know how to give the love to everyone else, but they don't direct it toward themselves. And of course, this is understandable because we were brought up to think that if you love yourself, that's the equivalent of being selfish. But it isn't really selfish. It's um, self-nurturant. So selfish is um, being caught up in ego, which we'll talk about after the break. And I'll go into this more in detail versus self-nurturant, which is simply about taking care of yourself. 
seventh grade, we had a class called hygiene, <laughs> where they, you know, told you brush your teeth, floss, you know, etc. Health habits. Well, that would be that's not selfish to do. That's just self-nurturant. That's taking care of yourself and smelling a lot better <laughs> to the world around you. And uh, this is a uh, kind of self-caring. Somehow we have to let that be okay. We have to let it uh, settle in us that we really do need to take care of ourselves. And um, I have noticed um, certainly uh, in my own um, part of my life where I was you know, you know, raising my son, I noticed that I was always putting more of the accent on how to take care of him rather than take care of me. And that just seemed like uh, suitable or the right way to do it. Later in life, I realized, well, I was kind of overdoing that. And I led myself into more of what's now called a codependent style in which his happiness matters more than mine. Well, the answer is not to make my happiness matter more than his. The answer is right here in Buddhist practice that somehow it has to be uh, concentric circles which are continually radiating and, and that it goes to myself and to others and to others and so forth. And uh, there's no longer a distinction so it's not as if I now love me more than him. It's more like I love me as I love me and I love him as I love him. It just has a different look, but the uh, love part is equal. So you see how this practice really does help us with this kind of a question. Because it legitimates your self-caring. It legitimates your loving yourself. And uh, as we go through the day, I'll be talking more about exactly how we do that. But um, we certainly have to start from a position of, of uh, full validation of that possibility. All right, so let's take a 10-minute break, and then we will come back and continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.